Please turn with me in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 2. When we left King Nebuchadnezzar last time, he was sitting in his throne room with his head in his hands, dark circles under his eyes, a troubled expression on his face. He had had a dream, and he knew it was no ordinary dream, and so he wanted to ensure that he got the right interpretation. And apparently he didn't trust his wise men very much. They had apparently been carries over from his father's cabinet. Nebuchadnezzar, as we said last week, had only been king for three years. And to, to ensure that the, the interpretation was correct, he told them that you must also tell me the dream. And when they said that was impossible, he sentenced them to death. That's where Daniel entered. Daniel asked for more time. He took that time to gather with his three friends and to pray. God gave him the answer, and then he comes back into the king to tell him the dream and the interpretation. And we're going to see that in the verses we look at this morning. In verses 31 to 35, we're going to see the dream. In verses 36 to 45, we're going to see the interpretation. And then in verses 46 to 49, we're going to see the reaction of the king. First of all, we see the dream, verses 31 to 35. Notice verse 31. You, O king, were looking, and behold, there was a single great statue. That statue, which was large and of extraordinary splendor, was standing in front of you, and its appearance was awesome. Nebuchadnezzar had a dream, and what he saw was a statue in human form. And Daniel describes it with several adjectives. He says it was large. It was massive. It was huge. Secondly, he says it was of extraordinary splendor. That is, it was brightly shiny. And finally, he says it was awesome or it was terrifying. It was huge, it was bright, and it was terrifying. And, add, and to add to all of that, it says it was standing right in front of him. And so it wasn't a long way off. It was right in front of King Nebuchadnezzar. Then verse 32. The head of that statue was made of fine gold, its breast and its arms of silver, its belly and its thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. Now let me note some general things about this statue, and we'll talk about them in more detail in a minute. First of all, as you descend down the statue, it deteriorates in value. It goes from gold to silver to bronze to iron to iron mixed with clay. Secondly, as you descend down the statue, there's more diversity. It starts with the head, solidarity, moves to two arms, moves on down the body until it ends up with ten toes. Third, as you descend down the statue, there is less specific gravity. Gold is heavier than silver, silver heavier than bronze, bronze heavier than iron, iron is heavier than clay. So this statue is more than twice as heavy at the top than it is at the bottom. It's top-heavy, and it's got weak feet. Fourth, as you descend down the statue, though the materials get lighter, they are actually stronger until we get to the feet. Iron is stronger than bronze. Bronze is stronger than silver. Silver is stronger than gold. But when we get to the feet, it says it's iron mixed with clay. That word literally means baked clay or pottery. And so it's very brittle and weak when we get to the feet. Verse 34. 
you continued looking until a stone was cut out without hands, and it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and crushed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed all at the same time and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them was found, but the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. A stone cut out without hands strikes the statue in its weakest part, the feet, crushes the entire statue. It becomes like chaff on a summer threshing floor. The wind blows it away, and then that stone becomes a great mountain and fills the whole earth. Verse 36, Daniel says, this was the dream. And you would expect Nebuchadnezzar to say, you're right, that's it. But he doesn't respond at all, which tells me his mouth is probably just hanging open at this point in time. Verse 36, Daniel says, This was the dream. Now we shall tell its interpretation before the king. Brings us to point two, the interpretation of the dream. Now back in verse 25, we know that Daniel was standing alone before the king because Ariok says, I have found a man who will tell you the dream and its interpretation. But when Daniel speaks here in verse 36, he says, we will tell you the dream. Now, who's he talking about? Well, maybe he's talking about his three friends who prayed with him to get the answer. Maybe he's talking about God who gave him the answer. Whatever he's talking about, it tells us a little bit about Daniel because he doesn't go in and say, I'm going to tell you the dream. He says, we are. God, through me, with the help of my three friends who prayed with me, are going to tell you what the dream means. Now, the interpretation is simply this. The statue of a man depicts what would happen during the days of man. This is going to be the history of human civilization not written by Will Durant or Edward Gibbon, but written by God himself. And at that point in time, Israel had literally pushed God aside. They said, we don't want you to reign over us. And so God allowed the pagan Gentile rulers and kingdoms to move on the center stage. And the focal point moves from Jerusalem to Babylon. And this statue depicts for us the succession of kingdoms from the time of Daniel to the end. What's interesting is when we come to Daniel chapter 7, we find this same description in a little bit different format. In chapter 2, it's a dream to Nebuchadnezzar, and what it comes out to be is a shining statue of man. When we come to chapter 7, we see it really from God's perspective, and he portrays it as four beasts. Daniel sees this statue, it's made up of different materials, and each one of those different materials represents for us a different world empire. And Daniel's going to tell us about those. When he told about the first one, I'm sure that Nebuchadnezzar got a smile on his face in verses 37 and 38. You, O king, are the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the strength, and the glory... And wherever the sons of men dwell, or the beasts of the field, or the birds of the sky, he has given them into your hand and has caused you to rule over them. You are the head of gold. 
You're the king of kings. You say, well, I thought that was a phrase used of Christ. It is. But see, here he's talking about the times of the Gentiles. During the time of man's government, Nebuchadnezzar was the king of all kings. He was the supreme monarch. And after saying that, Daniel is careful to remind him that it's God who gave it to him. And he says, wherever man dwells or beast dwells or birds dwell, God has given you dominion over that, the entire world. Now, Nebuchadnezzar didn't actually take control of all of that, but God actually gave it into his hands. Now, Nebuchadnezzar is depicted as gold. Why gold? Well, some people suggest Nebuchadnezzar is depicted as gold because he accumulated so much gold. Herodotus, the historian, visited Babylon about 100 years after Nebuchadnezzar. He wrote that in all his life he had never seen more gold nor ever imagined there could be so much. He said that Babylon was pure glitter from the palace to the Ishtar gate. Now, there may be something to that. But I think the primary reason why Nebuchadnezzar is depicted as gold is because he is set apart as the king of kings. When we have the Olympic Games, we give the winner gold, second place gets silver, third place gets bronze. Same order we have here. What he's saying to Nebuchadnezzar is, you win the gold medal. What's he saying? You are the one and only, among all of these others, you are the one and only single, solitary, real monarch. That was Nebuchadnezzar. In fact, it's interesting when we read down through here, he's the only one who's referred to as a king. The others are referred to as kingdoms. Why is that? Because he's the only real monarch. He's the gold. Babylon was far more his kingdom than he was its king. Nebuchadnezzar ruled for 43 years until he died, and after his death, several kings followed him in succession, but the kingdom only lasted another 23 years. Which brings us to the second kingdom, verse 39. And after you, there will arise another kingdom inferior to you. Now, back in verse 32, we're told that this kingdom was represented by the breast and arms of of silver. We have moved from solidarity in the head to now two arms. What kingdom followed Babylon? The Medo-Persian Empire. The Medes and the Persians. Two parts. And we will see the description of their takeover in Daniel chapter 5. Now, why are they referred to as silver? Well, some suggest it's because of the wealth of the Medo-Persian Empire. In fact, the word silver here in Aramaic is the very same word for money. They had a lot of money. They are the, the, the ones who developed uh, an elaborate system of taxation. In fact, you remember in the book of Nehemiah, chapter 5, it says the children of Israel in Jerusalem at that time had to go into debt to pay their taxes to the king of Persia. So he accumulated great wealth. Maybe that's why... He's noted as silver, but I think there's a more fundamental reason, and that is he is silver as opposed to gold because silver is less valuable. And Daniel states that in verse 39. He says, another kingdom will arise inferior to you. Now, how was this kingdom inferior? Well, it wasn't inferior in size. In fact, the Medo-Persian Empire was actually larger than the Babylonian Empire. 
In fact, each successive empire actually gets larger. But that's not Daniel's point, because if you look at the end of verse 39, he says of the third kingdom, it would rule over all the earth. So when he talks about the quality of the material, he's not talking about the size of the kingdom. You say, well, what is he talking about? Well, I think he's talking about the fact that they have an inferior quality of government. The government of Babylon was gold, a monarch. We move to the Medo-Persians, and the power is more diverse. It's, it's what's called an oligarchy. That is, government by a few. And even the power that those few held was not the same power that Nebuchadnezzar had. That's illustrated when we get over to Daniel chapter 6, and we find that Darius, Darius the king of the Medo-Persians, made a law that for 30 days nobody could worship anyone but him. And if they did, they were thrown into the lion's den. Now, if you read that chapter, he later changed his mind and wanted to change the law, but he didn't have the power to do so. You see, Nebuchadnezzar was gold. He was a monarch. Whatever he said happened. We moved to the second kingdom, the Medo-Persians. They are silver because the power has diminished in that government. What's interesting is, of the four kingdoms, this is the only one that Daniel has nothing to say about, except that it's inferior. And I think the reason for that is because he was, doesn't want Nebuchadnezzar to become paranoid, because Nebuchadnezzar knows that this is the kingdom that will topple his. And so he, all he says is, there's a kingdom coming after you, it's inferior to you. Babylonian Empire lasted from the time of Daniel, about 605 B.C., to... 539 B.C. Then came Cyrus the Great and the Medo-Persian Empire. It lasted about 200 years until 330 B.C., which introduces for us the third kingdom, verse 39. Then another, king, then, a, then another third kingdom of bronze, which will rule over all the earth. Back in verse 32, we find that this bronze made up the belly and the thighs. Who's that? Well, who came after the Medo-Persian Empire? Well, Greece under Alexander the Great. Why are they called bronze? Well, some suggest it's because Alexander's army dressed in bronze helmets, bronze breastplates, bronze shields, even bronze swords. But I think the main point, again, is because bronze is less valuable than silver and gold. Now, again, this has nothing to do with size because the end of verse 39 says you will rule or he will rule over all the earth. Alexander ruled Europe, Egypt, and all the way to India. But when he died in his early 30s, the kingdom was divided among four of his generals. Two took Syria and two took Egypt, which may indicate to us the two thighs that it develops into. But the power was further dissipated. In fact, the Greek structure of government was that they had many independent states and city-states, and eventually they were ruled by the aristocrats, the nobility ruled Greece. And so it was even more diverse than the Medo-Persian Empire. Greece lasted a little less than 200 years, which brings us to the fourth kingdom in verse 40. Then there will be a fourth kingdom as strong as iron inasmuch as iron crushes and shatters all things. So like iron that breaks in pieces, it will crush and break all these in pieces. Fourth kingdom. What kingdom followed Greece? Rome. 
By the second century BC, historians say that the Mediterranean Sea was a Roman lake. They, they owned it all. And actually, they moved into territories that Alexander never reached and had a greater empire. The two legs very well may indicate to us the two parts of the Roman Empire, the Western Roman Empire and the Eastern Roman Empire. From a governmental standpoint, Rome was imperialistic. They conquered nations, but they left the governments in place there. And so again, the power was even more diversified than it was in the previous kingdom. However, from a military point of view, they were the strongest of them all. And as he says in verse 40, they were as strong as iron. In his book, The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, Edward Gibbon wrote, the empire of the Romans filled the whole world, and when the empire fell into the hand of a single person, the world became a dreary prison for his enemies. To resist was fatal, and it was impossible to fly. Babylon lasted about 70 years. The Medo-Persian Empire lasted about 200 years. Greece lasted nearly 200 years. The Roman Empire lasted 500 years. It was the longest of them all, maybe identified by the fact that the legs would be the longest part of the statue. So this dream lays out the four empires that would rule the world, Rome being the last. You say, well, wait a minute. Rome went off the scene 1,500 years ago. Haven't we had another world empire since then? No. Napoleon tried it. Charlemagne tried it, Hitler tried it, Russia tried it. There will not be another world empire on this earth until the one we see described in verse 41. It says, and in that, in that you saw the feet and toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it will be a divided kingdom, but it will have in it the toughness of iron inasmuch as you saw the iron mixed with common clay. The Roman Empire was iron in the legs, he develops it on down to the feet, and in the feet, he says, it's iron mixed with clay. This is another empire. However, it's not really another empire because it's part iron, the Roman Empire, and it's mixed with something else, clay. Now, if you go back to history, you'll find that this did not happen with the Roman Empire. And verse 44 tells us that this kingdom will be around when Jesus comes back to set up his kingdom on earth. You say, well, why didn't Daniel make a, a division here and, 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 and make room for the, the 1,500 years in between? Well, the answer is because in the Old Testament, the prophets didn't see or understand the church age. And that's why when we come to the New Testament, we find that the church age is a mystery. They didn't understand it. So you can really put a parenthesis about the ankles of this statue because that's the period of time we live in that's the church age and it runs from the time in the first century when rome was around until right before the tribulation period when we will get the 70th week of daniel that we'll read about when we get to daniel chapter 9. and so daniel doesn't make a distinction for the time but he does make a distinction in the type of kingdom it is it was iron originally in its second form it's going to be iron mixed with clay and it's going to be different. Verse 41 says it won't be as unified. It will be a divided kingdom, iron mixed with clay. 
Verse 42 tells us it won't be as strong. He says, as the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of pottery, so some of the kingdom will be strong and part of it will be brittle. The Roman Empire was all iron. It was strong, militarily so. This kingdom will be partly strong and partly brittle. And then he says a third thing, and that is that it won't be as valuable. Verse 43. And in that you saw the iron mixed with common clay, they will combine with one another with the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another even as iron does not combine with pottery. Statue is made up of four materials, gold, silver, bronze, iron, and now he introduces another material which is foreign to any of those, and that is clay. And verse 43 says, the iron and the clay do not adhere to each other. Now, what does the clay represent? I think he tells us in verse 43 that it represents the seed of men. Where do men come from? Men come from the dust, the clay. Which tells me a couple things. Stay with me on this. Number one, the kingdoms of this world are not experiencing evolution. They are experiencing devolution. Back in verse 37, it says that God gave Nebuchadnezzar power, strength, and glory. Set him up as a supreme monarch. What happened? Man gradually digressed through kingdom after kingdom until he moves into mud. We are not going from dust to gold. We are going from gold to dust. Second point. The final form of government won't have the solidarity of iron. It won't have what the Roman Empire once had. It will be a combination of two ingredients, and I think they are this. The iron will of the government and the clay-like voice of the people. And we see that developing in our day when people no longer want to be submissive to governments. And so what we have done in this statue is we have moved from supreme monarch all the way down to the end when we will have democracies. Let me add a footnote. God's first choice in government is not democracy. Now, don't get me wrong. I love America, and I intend to stay here. But God's choice of government is not democracy. God's choice of government is monarch. In the millennial kingdom, we won't be voting. God's going to be in charge. That's his government with him in charge. He gave that government to, to Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar didn't have the moral fiber to handle it, and therefore it digressed down to what we have today. When the 13 colonies were still a part of England, Professor Alexander Tyler wrote these words, a democracy cannot exist as a permanent form of government. It can only exist until the voters discover that they can vote themselves money from the public treasury. From that moment on, the majority always votes for the candidates promising the most money from the public treasury with the result that a democracy always collapses over loose fiscal policy followed by a dictatorship. The average age of the world's great civilizations has been 200 years. 
These nations have progressed through the following sequence from bondage to spiritual faith, from spiritual faith to great courage, from courage to liberty, from liberty to abundance, from abundance to selfishness, from selfishness to complacency, from complacency to apathy, from apathy to dependency, and from dependency back to bondage. Our democracy is 220 years old. I would say that we're somewhere between complacency and apathy. What's Daniel telling us? Out of the ashes of the Roman Empire is going to arise an extension of that empire. Won't be as unified, won't be as powerful, won't be as valuable in terms of its governmental structure. So keep your eyes on Europe because that's where it will arrive. And then in verse 44, we're told another thing about it. It says, and in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom. In the days of those kings, God's going to set up his kingdom. Now, what kings is he talking about? Well, obviously, he's not talking about the kings of those four kingdoms because they didn't live at the same time. They didn't live in the same days. What kings is he talking about? I think he's talking about the ten toes on the feet. Those ten toes are ten kings. You say, well, that doesn't say that here. It doesn't say that here. It's only implied here. But I want to show you where it does say that. Turn over to Daniel chapter 7. I told you earlier that Daniel chapter 7 is a description of this same thing, the four major kingdoms that will rule on the earth from Daniel's day to the coming of Christ. Only in Daniel chapter 7, they are depicted as beasts. And in verse 7, notice what it says. After this, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast. That would correspond to the fourth kingdom in the statue, which is Rome. Notice what he says about this beast at the end of verse 7. And it had ten horns. Now, how do we understand that? We'll look over at verse 24. He interprets it for us. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom, ten kings will arise. This kingdom has ten horns, represent ten kings. In Revelation chapter 17 and verse 12, we read these words, And the ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but they receive authority as kings with the beast for one hour. And that's why when we come back here to Daniel chapter 2, when he talks about the kings in verse 44, I believe he's talking about the ten toes on the statue that represent the ten kings that, that are corresponding to the ten horns in Daniel chapter 7 and the ten horns in the book of Revelation. So when you watch Europe, watch for a ten-kingdom confederacy, which may be something comparable to, if it's not, the present-day European common market. You say, well, what about the climax of this dream? What's this about a stone coming and destroying the statue and growing into a huge mountain? Well, we don't have to guess who the stone is because 14 times in Scripture, Jesus is called the stone. We find in Scripture that he is the smitten stone. 
Remember in Exodus chapter 17, Moses struck the rock and out came water. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 and 4, Paul tells us that that rock was Christ. Christ, just as Moses struck the rock in the wilderness, Christ was smitten on the cross. And out of Christ flows rivers of living water for us. He is also depicted in Scripture as the stumbling stone. In Romans chapter 9 and verse 33, Paul says, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And Israel tripped over him. They stumbled over him. He's also depicted in Scripture as a cornerstone. In Isaiah 28, 16, it says, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation, firmly placed. He who believes in it will not be disturbed. But he's also depicted in Scripture as the smiting stone. Jesus said this of himself in Matthew 21, 44, He who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. And that's what Daniel is saying in Daniel chapter 2. The stone comes, it's Jesus Christ. He smites the feet of the statue, that last government, that revived Roman Empire. He shatters the entire statue, all of man's government. The stone grows into a mountain, which becomes the kingdom of Christ. Notice verse 44, how he lays it out. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it, but it will itself endure forever, inasmuch as you saw that a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. Five things we can say about Christ's kingdom from these verses. Number one, it will be supernatural. This stone is cut out without hands. That may indicate to us the virgin birth of Christ. Or it may simply indicate to us that this kingdom is not man-made. It's like nothing we've ever seen. It's supernatural. Second, we learn that it will be sudden. All of the other kingdoms are built upon one another and they gradually come into being, not this one. It comes with the suddenness of a rock smiting the statue. Third, it will be severe. As Christmas approaches, we often sing of the sweet baby Jesus, but he is also the righteous judge. And one day, this old world that has rejected him, that has made him a laughing stock, that has used his name as a swear word, will see him coming out of heaven, riding on a white horse, dealing a death blow to the nation. Prophet Malachi gave this chilling description of the time when Christ will return in Malachi 4.1. Behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff, and the day that is coming will set them ablaze. Fourth characteristic, it will be sovereign. This stone becomes a mountain, and it fills the whole earth. That's sovereign rule. Then we will see the real king of kings. And then scriptures like Psalm 72, 11 will be fulfilled where it says, and let all kings bow down before him. All nations serve him. Fifth characteristic, it will be successful. Daniel says in verse 44, it will never be destroyed. 
It will not be left for another. It will endure forever. There's the interpretation. You say, well, does that mean that before Christ can come back, there has to be a revived Roman Empire? No, because you have to understand the second coming of Christ. He's going to come for his church, and he's going to come with his church. The revived Roman Empire only has to be set up before he comes with his church, which may in fact happen in that seven-year tribulation period that we'll read about later in the book of Daniel. There are only two things that must happen before Christ comes for his church, and they're described in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 16, the shout of the archangel and the trumpet of God. That's all that has to happen for Jesus to return today to take us to be with him. Well, there's the interpretation. Let's just quickly see the reaction of the king beginning in verse 46. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face and did homage to Daniel and gave orders to present to him an offering and fragrant incense. That, that's amazing. The king comes off his throne and onto his knees. But he's not bowing down to Daniel. That's evident by what he says in verse 47. The king answered Daniel and said, Surely your God is a God of gods and a Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries since you have been able to reveal this mystery. He says some great things about God. But this is a short-lived conversion because we're going to see that when we get to chapter 3. Verse 48. Then the king promoted Daniel and gave him many great gifts he made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. He kept his promise of chapter 2, verse 6, and he rewarded him, made him ruler over all the province of Babylon, made him the chief wise man. And then verse 49, And Daniel made request of the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the administration of the province of Babylon while Daniel was at the king's court. Daniel didn't forget his three friends who had prayed with him, and they are promoted as well, and they will take center court next week when we get into chapter 3.